So for the audience, we're going to give a little introduction to give context to this discussion. About four or five months ago, as we began to talk about consumerization of the employee experience that was inspired by Spirit Airlines, David, and then confirmed by Beverly at PayPal, um, we began to ask the question of what's the role of the technology leaders. And um, I wasn't sure how it was going to be received on the CTO, CIO front. And I reached out to, to different folks and uh, some were misses for various reasons. And then I hit on Nimesh, which, oh my goodness, we were inspired with. This is our third conversation. And thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Adam. Thanks for having me. This is going to be wonderful. Sam, Sam, I I am excited. And you and I are going to talk about some very simple things like how we use GPS. You and I will touch on uh, Star Trek a bit. Um, We're going to weave in kind of the practical side of things. But I think it was our discussion around your feedback. I said, Nimesh, consumerization of employee experience, what do you think? And you said, well, maybe, maybe. But what if we went beyond? What if we talked about how to humanize the employee experience. And um, that was interesting. And we went back and forth for quite a bit. And since then, I, I began to ask the question if this is another, I don't think it's a pivot, it's a refinement of the podcast and where we're headed. So to give context to the audience, I would love for you, because it was really visceral, the way you described the GPS, you, you know, and, and how that communicates with us and what that means to the human experience. I think it will ground the conversation. So if, walk the audience through how you're thinking about it. Absolutely. You know, first of all, uh, when you think about consumerization, I I love that word because it is all about the experience. When you push it, you know, everything sounds like still a little bit digital. So when you push the boundaries, you know, you think about humanizing that experience, right? Whether it be for your employee, your customers, all of that seems to be, especially after COVID, right? All of us are sort of struggling for that human experience rather than the digital one. And when we think about digital, you know, there's an assumption um, in there, and I'll I'll give you the little GPS story, but if there's an assumption in there that says humans act rationally all the time, right? Step one, you know, that's what a computer assumes, and that's not true. Secondly, it assumes that we know our preferences. If you've ever talked to a human being, talk to my son, talk to my family, nobody knows what they want, you know? Ever try going to a restaurant and asking your family, where do you want to go? And I wish I had invested in a restaurant anywhere. And uh, I think I would have made a lot of money on that one. So people don't know their preferences. And secondly, people don't know how to prioritize their options because they do it based on emotion and not data. That's how humans react, right? So they're expecting that feedback that they get from the digital experience to feel human. So the best example that I, we talked about last time that I always allude to is the GPS, right? Think about it, about three, four years ago, when you were in your car, I mean, the GPS worked wonderfully. In fact, it's a life-saving device for me because I can't find my way in my own backyard. So it was perfect. But whenever I came to an intersection or something, the GPS, the lady in there said, you know, in the next 100 meters, make a right turn. I'm not walking around with a measuring tape and I have no depth perception. I have no idea where 100 meters is. And that's now how we communicate. Today, if you look at it, go into your car, go into your iPhone and, and turn on your GPS, you know, the reaction from, from the experience is at the next light, make a right turn. That's how humans behave. That's what humanization is. It is about empathy. You know, 
It's the experience of meeting people where they are versus expecting them to come to you. The 100 meters was expecting me to come to you and figuring out what 100 meters meant. The turn at the next light is empathy of you coming to me and explaining it to me the way I want it to be explained. Something about that story just connected for me, and, and I experience it the same way as, as you describe it. Every time the GPS says this many feet, you know, do this, the same questions uh, come to mind. Um, you know, Nimesh, I, um, I was thinking about your background and, and how you developed your point of view. It looks like about 15 years you've been in executive positions, ranging from strategy to technology to operations, and now as a chief information officer. And I was really intrigued, you know, in your description, you, you really just hone in on, you know, you see yourself as amplifying the customer experience with a culture of simplicity, talent, and innovation really connecting the customer experience with the employee experience. Uh, I'd be curious to for the audience to just kind of, what have what has been the major inspiration maybe or drive for you to develop this point of view and to make that connection? Because I don't think that connection is, maybe, maybe leaders talk about it, but very few are doing something about making that connection. So, so why, how did you get to where you are? You know, it's interesting, I've had, uh 360 degree view of our organization. And that's what allows me to really focus on the customer. I started in technology. Technology is all about changing experiences, but it's one lens to the world. Strategy then sets the tone. And I was privileged to see the enterprise view to say, what does the experience actually do for an organization, right? All the way front to center back, what's the impact? And then the third one is doing operations. That's where the work happens. What's the employee experience feel like? Because if people aren't engaged, they're not productive. If they're not productive, we aren't doing well. You know, so that experience really goes down to the employee. And then coming back to technology again is really stitching all of that together to create that technology, which is why I talk about humanization. Is that experience that brings it all together for me. And our company, National Life Group, if you read about them, you know, it's all about doing good, being good, and making good. And that good part really resonates with me about experience, and especially with simplicity and innovation, right? Because as humans, we like to make things more complex. As employees, we like to make things more complex. And in our organization, we have a pretty a running mantra um, around the company, simple is hard. It's really hard to make things simple. And we try to simplify the wrong things and make things that are complex different. And let me give you another example on this because I don't want to be esoterical around it. You know, for all you iPhone users out there, right? When you pick up your new phone, what's in the box? There's a phone. What's not in the box? There's no manual. Yet, that device is probably more complicated than mission control that sent man to the moon. So you don't have to simplify the device. You have to simplify the way people interact with it. And I think that goes all the way through through experiences is the experience can be complicated, but the interaction needs to be really simple. And we've done so much on the customer side. So the question now is how do we begin that journey or, or you know, go further in that journey on the employee experience side? Um, Nimesh, you and I talked briefly about the four pillars of people initiatives that we've developed after the first season. And I'd like to just touch on each one and maybe hear just a, a quick reaction from you as we think about 
consumerization versus humanization, if, if that's a word. I think that's a word. Humanization? I think so. Absolutely. Let's talk about that. You know, I, I, when you sent it to me, I thought it was really, really uh, interesting concepts to run through. So I think it might be good for your audience for you to kind of explain them and then I'll give you my two cents on them. Yeah, yeah. So the first one is how do we measure success? And it began in the learning and development and change management space where we talked often about activities, but I kept hearing our agents of change, those who see a future differently, talk about it from business outcomes perspective. In fact, many were absolute. They said we must move into the business outcome direction. We must get closer to our BUs in order for us to both make an impact and for us to have the resources that we need in order to create impact. So success moving from activities to business outcomes. What do you think, Dimash? I love what you just said because it is about impact and impact is more important than the actually the outcome. And I think those two get used a little interchangeably. So let's push the boundary a little bit on, on this piece as well. When we talk about business outcomes in a business, usually it's a metric that measures it. When I think about that metric, metrics drive human and employee behavior. So if you use the wrong metric, you'll drive the wrong behavior. Let me give you another example on this one. Let's take a call center. And I'll use an extremely uh, hyperbolic example just to set the tone on this. Okay? If you're measuring average handle time as a success metric or a business outcome for a contact center, what are you going to do? people are going to hang up really quick because that's the best way you get a better hand, average handle time is you don't talk to anybody. <laughs> so that's a bad behavior and it's an unintended con you know, consequence of what you are trying to actually measure. Versus, I think we have to measure, as you just said, impact versus outcome. What is the impact of the work you're doing and have people understand the why behind the what? I think a lot of times we spend a lot of time measuring things and looking at things and really spending time with our employee base thinking about the how to do something. We spend very little time talking about the why. And I think putting the why before the what really gets to impact. And I think impact drives business outcomes at the end of the day. I think that's the next phase we have to try to think about. We're going to modify as a thesis right on the fly. We'll, we'll say moving from activities to business instead of outcomes, business impact. Our, our second pillar then, and I'm curious what the impact here, what the uh, implications will be, is, you know, we think about decisions being intuition-based. Again, this began in L&D and change management. It makes sense to do the following activities, right? This is logical for us to move into leadership development or do a training session or have a town hall. Instead, decisions are now moving into data-driven. Now, I do get a lot of feedback. Let's let's remember data-driven with a heart. Um, we want to keep the, the human aspect in it. But Nimesh, what's, what's your take on decisions moving from intuition to data-driven? I actually love that concept of data-driven decision-making. And organizations, I believe, are chasing it. Harnessing data, using the power of data, you'll hear all kinds of things. I think this was in the Economic Times somewhere, uh, read what data is the new oil, all kinds of things around data. Data is really important, but using data to make decisions is even more important. So if I put a twist to this thing uh, just a little bit, I think we're still not there yet. And when I say we're not there yet is we still have confirmation bias. 
Ask yourself how many times people make a decision, then they go look for data to prove whether their decision was right or wrong, right? Versus what is the data telling you? So that's one, right? Can you read the data and actually understand something to make a decision versus your gut telling you what to do and you're looking for data to make sure your decision making is right? And the second piece I'd say from intuition is it's the combination, right? It's the art and the science. The science is the data, but at the end of the day, you know, humans are, as I said, illogical. And sometimes humans make bets that have bad odds and they still win, right? That's the intuition part that you can never let go because we wouldn't be here as a race if we did everything that was logical. It's those people that took that step that nobody thought was possible and they did it. That's a decision they made. That was not data-driven at all. The art and the science involved in data, in data-driven, so true in the confirmation bias, uh, that could take us down the, the rabbit hole of discussing how on the employee experience side, data is siloed in many organizations. Uh, as I'm having these conversations with you know hundreds of, of companies and leaders, the data maturity spectrum appears to be just, just, uh, just overwhelming. There's some organizations that truly cannot look at two different data sets in one place from an employee experience perspective. And then there are other organizations that are releasing single source of truth or, or, or a path forward to create a single, single source of truth. Um, awesome. Well, I'll, I'll uh, restrain from getting into, into that discussion or maybe we'll, we'll, we'll see where we go next. But let's talk about the third pillar, which is communication. Command and control has been the norm. For, for a long time in organizations. And um, when we go home, we experience the world as customers very differently. It's really personalized. It's made relevant for us. Um, so the question or the, the thesis here is communication is moving from command and control to hyper personalized for the employee experience. What do you think? I think command and control worked in the industrial revolution that was so long back. It was something, and I'm not saying, not passing judgment, you know, different times need different types of communication. Uh, as we're evolving as human beings, that hyper-personalized communication style is becoming even more important. Because again, it lands on the piece that I was, we discussed earlier, which is humanization. So even this hyper-personalized experience needs to be human at the end of the day. When you look at the Gen Zs and you look at the, you know, the, the people that are going to end up being, you know, 20, 25% of our workforce in the next few years, they're expecting that. It's not even something that they desire. They expect it. They will not work for you without it. And that's the piece of the empathy that we talked about earlier. They're expecting you to come to them and humanize that communication so that they can appreciate and understand the why, because it's very important to this new generation to understand the why, and the way they expect to understand it, not the way you transmit. So there's a little bit that I talk about this, is transmission and receiving. If they're not set to the same frequency, you could transmit all you want, there's nobody receiving it. So I think it's tuning into the right frequency is that humanization aspect which is a little more to the right of even hyper-personalized. It's the next step. So I think that tuning in is really important. And I think the command and control may have worked 20, 30 years ago. 
it's not going to do anything today. No, it's not. No, it's not. And, and the frequency, working with that logic, would you say everyone has their own frequency? Absolutely. I mean, and that's why if I'm transmitting in 104.7 and somebody's tuned into 106.5, you're not going to hear anything. Yeah, yeah, and that's the feedback we're getting from leaders, long emails, videos, mass communications, all of that is being ignored. If not, is doing more harm than good. Some people, you know, and I would add also some people, and when you talk about communication, it's a different style for different people. Some people love videos, some people don't. Some people like to read, some people like to listen. You know, everybody just like they learn differently, people also learn to communicate differently and receive it differently. And that's the frequency we have to tune into. Totally. And that takes us to the last pillar, which is as we think about the employee journey, uh, the age of reactive support is moving into a new age. Um, and there are different ways to describe this new age. For now, what we have is deliberate care. And, and working with a call center example, I, I think there's a time when, hey, let's look at the data. We have an issue. Right. We have an issue. We've been measuring this versus that. We now need to run an intervention. That intervention will last X number of months. It will include the following training sessions, and then it's over. Not, that's not how we think about the customer experience. We think about this customer experience journey of being ongoing. There are touch points. There's a way that we show care at every portion of that experience. How do we become deliberate on the employee journey side? Nimesh, what do you think? You know, I think this is another human element, right? The word care itself is human, right? You know, computers don't care. Humans care. And I think the word care is a very important element of support. Right. So I think if you push the boundary again a little bit more to the right, um, reactive support was where it used to be, you know, deliberate care. And the next one, again, is moving, as we talked about, to empathy, right, to the complete right hand side, which is being able to use all the elements. And you're working not just with IQ, but with SQ. Right. And that comes with experience, practice, teaching and learning. It's a, it's a whole learning organization behavior. So if you think about this, um, let me give you an example. You know, have you ever tried writing instructions on tying a shoelace? It's not easy. And I could write a page worth of instructions and you'll get it wrong. But if I show you how to do it, you'll do it. And you'll do it well. And you'll practice it more. And you'll teach another person. So I think a little bit more about that reactive support when you move to empathy is that experience and seeing and learning from others is really important because I think it's like tying a shoelace. That's another just amazing example. I, I thought about where would I begin writing instructions for how to tie shoelaces. Wow. <laughs> that, would be, that would be a challenge. And uh, I'll give you a little tidbit. There's actually more than 500 ways to tie a shoelace. Is that right? That's true. I believe it. I believe it. So the, the, there's our, our kind of reflections, Nimesh, your reflections on the four pillars. And there's a common thread here. And the common thread really leads us from thinking about it as digital transformation to human transformation. You know, when we think about the human transformation, you, you, you also brought up from teams to teaming was another, another interesting concept. I'd love for our audience to hear your point of view on, on that transition. Yeah. I think as the world is changing and when you think about your employee base, 
they're not working together all the time, right? Even work from home, remote work, everything has now gotten to hybrid. It's a different world. And this concept, and I didn't come up with this concept, so if you can read about it, um, there's a very famous lady, Amy Edmondson, who has written about this in Harvard. She's talked about it. There's books about this concept. But I think putting it to practical use is really important. So let me kind of get into the concept first, and then we'll talk about some practical usage of it. You know, what are teams? Like, let's think about teams. Teams, think about a basketball team, right? They're players who practice together. They know each other really well. They know what other people are going to do. They know when to pass. They know when not to pass. And because of that practice, they get really, really good at knowing each other. They take that skill and then they go to play a game and they win or lose, but they have that skill to work together. So they know each other. That's the concept of teams. The concept of teaming is when you put people together that have never worked together before, and now you have to get something done. A good example that Amy Edmondson uses, and I think this is a great example, if you remember the time when the Chilean miners were stuck and you know, they couldn't get them out, it was almost a disastrous task and they thought they would die in there. They flew people with all kinds of disciplines into Chile and they had a very singular, clear vision. They never worked together and the vision was get them out alive. Right? So when you think about the concept of teaming, you get people with different experiences, different skill sets together that have never worked together on a project or anything at work and you put them together but you must have a really clear vision of what they must accomplish. And that is how the world works today. People come together and they leave. It's not the word that you can practice together in large organizations because you'll never be able to scale to be able to do that. And I think that's the concept of teaming that we're going to get to, which is a more form of human ways of dealing with the way we do things versus the concept of teams where we're constantly together, learning together. That doesn't happen anymore. It's almost, a, in, in my mind, there's like a dichotomy. We're discussing scale and data and, you know, automations. And then on the, on the other side, we're talking about how do we push the boundaries of creating more human experiences and all respects, starting with the why you're doing what you're doing, right? In this case, saving lives. That's that why brought everyone together. Um, you and I touched on Star Trek, and, and I think you gave another great example that we're trying to be like one, not the other. If, if you remember that example, I think the, it's worth the audience to hear it. Sure. You know, when you think about decision making, right? And I always think about Spock versus Captain Kirk. Spock was the most logical person, had all the data, and yet... Captain Kirk would do something really out of the ordinary, listening to all the data that he was getting from Spock, from the doctor, from his engineers, and make a decision that wasn't always logical. So at the end of the day, when you think about decision-making, do you want a Spock-based decision-making or do you want Captain Kirk? Because Spock will get you somewhere, but Captain Kirk will get you out of trouble. Yeah, that, and then it's, it's interesting. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. It's almost philosophical in nature. I shared with you that I had, um, I like playing chess and I have two boys, 17 and 15. 
And uh, one day, my oldest brought in AI as part of chess experience. And they began plotting. My first reaction was, wait a second, this is why would we bring in AI? We were playing against each other. That's that's part of the fun. And he said, hold on a second. Um, and he plotted our game with AI. And now every time he made a move, in addition to kind of seeing where it goes in the game, AI was now um, giving an opinion, rating it, saying, hey, that move increased your odds of winning or losing. And also, you could now go back and take a look at better moves that you could have made. And that enhanced the experience. And Namesh, would, would you agree we are, I don't know, six months, one year, two years away from AI being a part of just about every aspect of our experience? I think it's already there. I mean, if you think about it, it's already there. It's getting to the next stages. I mean, think about chat GPT, right? Um, I think with AI, we have to kind of going back to the movie side of the world. Um, I'll give you the Spider-Man quote, right? With great power comes great responsibility. So that's the piece of AI that we have to learn to tackle. Um, it's really trying to figure out what you want to do with it. But at the end of the day, I'll go back again to say, you know, in, I think this was the 1980s where Kasparov beat the computers at every chess game, right? He was better. Computing power just wasn't there yet, right? I think it was in the late 90s, 97, 98, somewhere, where the first IBM computer actually beat a human at playing chess. And today, a computer can absolutely beat a human at playing chess. You can take a grandmaster after grandmaster after grandmaster, and they will win every single time. But when you think about even chess, you know, think about the moves, right? You play chess, so you know this. As a human, you can figure out moves and you're thinking four, five, six, seven, ten steps ahead. A computer is thinking 100, 200, 300 steps ahead of you. And even though there are lots and lots of different combinations, at the end of the day, the number of combinations is still finite. It's not infinite. It's a very large number, but for a computer, it's still finite. That is the predictability that comes in chess. But with AI, I think what we're coming to right now is AI learning the unpredictability of humans, right? Learning to decipher what is not predictable in that intelligence. And I think that's the part that is exciting yet scary. Because when you start using AI to predict human behavior, which is not logical, you're asking a machine that is not logical not, I mean, a machine that is logical to do something that is illogical. Mm -hmm. That becomes the exciting part. But as you think about it, at the end of the day, what are you trying to solve? Are you trying to solve a problem with AI? Or is this a solution looking for a problem? So many questions, and I'd love to, to guide our, our episodes here shortly towards Chad JPT. I can't stop playing with it. I've been asking it all kinds of questions. I, last night I said, hey, if you, if you were to ask feedback about an organizational mission, how would you phrase it? And how would you do it if you were in healthcare versus manufacturing? How would you do it if you added humor? How would you do it if the person who's receiving it is this age versus that age? How would you introduce motivational behavior elements that would improve the chances of getting a response? And I was blown away. You know, 
I I know things are are scary when I was on at the computer at eleven thirty at night getting responses and I started to laugh. It's right. right amazing as to what you can get. However, with all AI, you know, at the end of the day, it's human trained. So it depends on how you ask the question. Right? Take a simple one with um, ChatGPT. You could go and ask it, why do cows jump over the moon? And you will get the most logical answer as to why cows jump over the moon. And we all know cows don't jump over moons. So it's the way you ask the question is what you will get in terms of the answer. And sometimes you can tell it is very confidently giving you responses that are totally fictitious. So you got to be careful of how we want to use AI in the real world. But when you, when you think about, we always tend to start with AI, which is starting with the technology. So if we rewind, you know, um, go back to the VHS days and rewind, I mean, the first thing you have to ask yourself is, do you want to change minds first, then process, then technology? Or do you want to start with technology that changes minds? I mean, for me personally, I think any technology that we're using, whether it be AI and the way the world is going, uh, improving the uh, employee experience, thinking about consumerization, thinking about humanization, at the end of the day, we've got to first change the minds of people as to what they're trying to tackle, right? Get a clear problem set that you want to go after. Then you change how you're going to tackle it. Then you apply what technology do you bring to the table. Otherwise, you end up, like I was saying earlier, is a solution looking for a problem. Totally, which is why this conversation, I think, is both timely and so important as our audiences continue to think about the future of people initiatives. And, and you know every uh, episode is a question, you know, because we're, we're exploring together. Um, and I think in this episode, we're making the case for them to look for the answer to the question of how do you humanize the employee experience? And, and with that, Nimesh, yeah, I'm curious if you could share some advice for those that are listening if they agree with the sentiment, how would you suggest for them to proceed? What are some of the steps that they can take as well as gain internal alignment that is will be absolutely critical in order for them to create impact within their organization? You know, what I'd like to leave your audience with is a couple of things. Um, I think the first thing is when you're successful, you tend to get complacent. Right? Whether it be transformation, digitization, whatever it is. So I think watch for complacence because just because you're doing well doesn't mean it's going to continue. And as you think about the employee experience, you think you've reached that where everybody's engaged, everybody's happy, the experience looks great. The world will turn one more time, right? That's the complacence factor. The second thing I'd like to, to leave them with is, you know, Think about the art versus the science, right? When you think about humans and experience, don't negate the human spirit. Because there's a lot to the human spirit that has nothing to do with technology, has nothing to do with decision making. It's that internal secret sauce that humans have that got this race to where we are today. And we can't forget that and put that in the hands of technology or science or art or any other discipline. It's that human spirit that we can't forget. And then the third thing and last thing I'd leave them with is how do you harness that human spirit? 
And I think harnessing that human spirit is about ensuring that your experience includes diversity of thought in the employee base. Because if you don't have diversity of thought, you've got everybody nodding their heads and think the same way, you're never going to be able to tackle a problem in a different way. And today, there are new things coming at us all the time, like constantly. And if we don't figure out a different way to tackle it, we won't be able to do it. So the human spirit connected with diversity of thought, I think is the magic answer to solving what we may not even know we're going to face in the future. Brilliantly summarized. And maybe uh, kind of is a little bit of a, a teaser into another episode that, that you and I could do, which is how do we harness the human spirit? That, that would be an exciting one. But Nimesh, I, I just i am super grateful for you taking the time and sharing your brilliance with the audience. Adam, it's been wonderful. I uh, really enjoyed it. And I hope your audience takes away something from this. Thank you. I'm sure they will. Over and out, Nimesh. <laughs>